morning. I'll invite you to turn to Acts the second chapter again tonight. We started this discussion this morning and said we would continue it this evening, and so I want to try to do that, Acts the second chapter. Acts the second chapter, just by way of review, uh, really tells us of events on the day of Pentecost, very important day in the history of God's plan of salvation. Uh, in our auditorium class this quarter, we've been studying God's covenants, the covenants that God has made with His people or with people throughout history. And this morning, in the last session or two, we've been talking about God's covenant with Abraham. And we made the point this morning that, Genesis chapter 12, that God intended to bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, through the seed of Abraham. And if that's God's plan, to bless all the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham, well, this is the day when, in a sense, that begins to be fulfilled, isn't it? And so, Christ has come. He's done His work. He's been to the cross, made atonement for our sins. He's been raised from the dead. The apostles were told by Christ, go to Jerusalem, wait until you'll be clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes. And so they do that, and all of that is in anticipation of the gospel of Christ being preached in fulfillment of that promise that God would bless all nations through the seed of Abraham, of course, who is Christ. And so that begins to be fulfilled now as the gospel of Christ is preached first to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, eventually then to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, which would be a, a next major step in the fulfillment of that plan. And so this is an important day. This is a milestone in the history of God's plan of salvation. It's been in his mind since eternity. He's been working toward this day throughout the centuries as he worked through the nation of Israel and ultimately through the sacrifice of Christ. The gospel was preached on that day by the apostles. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that in the first part of Acts chapter 2. They began to speak, speak in other languages so that the various people there from various nations, from every nation under heaven is what the passage says, could uh, understand in their own language the gospel being preached. They understood it. They accepted it. They believed in it as true. They trusted in it as the power of God for salvation. And they obeyed. They trust, trusted and obeyed, as uh, Peter tells them, not only to believe, but to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people on that day did that. They accepted the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus as God's Son and their Savior. And they, were, they repented of their sins and they were baptized. Our interest this morning was what happened after Pentecost. In the days that followed, in the, the time that followed, what, what did they go about doing? What, what are the qualities and the characteristics that we find in them? See, that's our situation, isn't it? We live on this side of Pentecost. We're very much like them in that regard. We've accepted the gospel. We've obeyed the gospel. We have the remission of our sins through the gospel. But now what? How do we proceed? What, what should we do as we go forward. And this morning we look especially at Acts 2 verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we want to do that. And so we want to follow the apostles' teaching. 
Whatever we find in the New Testament, that's what we want to do. And we believe that the New Testament, the Apostles' teaching, will guide us completely into what we need to do. And so this is why we do what we do when we come together for worship, for example. This is why we sing, why we pray, why we preach, why we meet together on the first day of the week to observe the Lord's Supper, because we can find those things written for us in the New Testament, in the Apostles' Doctrine. If it's not supported by the Apostles' Doctrine, we don't want to do that. That would not be continually being continually devoted to the Apostles' Doctrine if we deviated from it or digressed from it in some way. And so we want to stay within the limits of the Apostles' Doctrine and do what they approve. And if they, the approval is not there, well then we, we don't want to do it. They continued in fellowship. They were partners together in the gospel, in their new relationship in Christ. They were truly brothers and sisters, enjoying together the benefits of the gospel, taking on together the responsibility or the work of the gospel. And so they have this partnership, this joint participation in the gospel in Christ. They continually devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. And we took that to be an allusion to, a reference to the Lord's Supper. Took it very seriously, it was an occasional thing or casual thing to them. They were devoted to it. They continually, continued steadfastly in that. And so on a regular basis, week after week, they would come together to eat, uh, eat the Lord's Supper, to observe the Lord's Supper. We see more information about that from Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, as well. And then they devoted themselves to prayer. You know, our, our problem with prayer if we have a problem with prayer. Our problem is not that we're ignorant of what we ought to do. It's not, it's not a lack of information. Most of us have been studying about prayer for all our lives. Well, we, we, we know what the Bible teaches us to do about prayer. Our problem is we may not be continually devoted to it the way we ought to be or the way we need to be. And so we need to just engage in a little introspection, examine ourselves. If we can do it better, let's do it better. If we can do it more regularly, let's do it more regularly. If we can do it more intensely and, and fervently, well, let's do that as well. And so that's what we talked about this morning. I'm not going to repeat that anymore, any longer. I've done enough of that. All right, what else do we find in this passage here in Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning here in verse 42 and going through the end of the chapter? Well, here's our passage tonight, beginning in verse 43. And everyone, all, the, all those who had become Christians, of the 3,000, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and in sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'm reading from New American Standard Bible. Your, your version might read a little bit differently, but uh, the differences, I think, are, are, are slight. Well, there are some things that, that kind of jump out at me as I take a look at this passage and I'll try to bring those to light. You might see others or you might see the same things, but just spend a few minutes talking about what the disciples did after Pentecost. That's what we want to do. We want to try to recapture that first century uh, practice of the gospel of Christianity. Well, 
one thing that kind of jumps out as you read this is, is the unity, the togetherness of that early church, those early disciples. Did you pick up on that as we were reading through? They were together. They had all things common. They were sharing. They continued with one mind. They were taking their meals together. And so there was a, a unity, a togetherness among these early disciples. Now that's pretty impressive when you think about all the different places that these people had come from. Go earlier in the chapter, begin reading in verse 9, a list of the various places where these people had come from. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya and Cyrene, uh, the vis visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own language, the mighty deeds of God. And so look at all those different places, Mesopotamia, Northern Africa, Asia, Rome, all, all of those, as well as in and around Jerusalem and, and that area. So we've got all these people, all these, these are Jews so far, all these Jews from various places, all coming together to Jerusalem. They hear the gospel, they obey it, and now they are together. They have this great unity, this great togetherness among them. There are Hellenistic Jews, no doubt. There are Jews from Palestine, but they're all united together, that sense of unity. How can that be? How, how, could, how could these, they're, they're all Jews, of course, but Jews from various places, different languages, different customs, different cultures, all of those things, they come together and they're united. How can that possibly be? Well, their devotion to Christ is greater than their devotion to these other things. That, that's how it can be. They're more devoted to Christ than they are the customs of their own na nation. They're more devoted to Christ than they are to the differences that, that uh, come between them because they're from different places. And so, because they're more devoted to Christ than they are those other things, now they can be united, now they can be brought together in one group, in one body. That's, that's what the gospel does. It brings together in one body people from disparate backgrounds, sometimes hostile backgrounds. And so sometimes you'll have a, a person from this background and usually people that grew up in that culture, they're hostile toward people who grew up in this culture. But because of their love for Christ and devotion to Christ is greater than the hostility that exists between them, then they can be unified. It's only when, you know, it's only when their hostility is as great or greater than their love for Christ that you begin to have problems, isn't it? Well, many passages in the Bible encourage this and teach this kind of unity, encourage this among God's people. There are two, that th two or three that stand out. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of them. In verse 13, now in Christ, you who formerly were far off, that would be Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. 
And so their devotion to Christ and devotion to the cross is greater than the enmity that existed between them before they became Christians. In verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so just a passage that talks about the unity, encourages the unity that ought to exist among God's people. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 is another one of these passages. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind, striving together for the common cause, the faith of the gospel. And finally, Romans chapter 15, verses 6 and 7. With one spirit, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And so, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, you might remember, tells us to be in agreement of the same mind and the same judgment. Well, we can be. Even though we might be from different backgrounds, different places, different races, different interests in our background and so forth, we, we can be of the same mind and the same judgment when our devotion to Christ is greater than our devotion to anything else. Then we can be of the same mind and the same judgment. All right, here's another uh, uh, element or feature that we find in these first, first Christians. They kept feeling a sense of awe. And so, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 37 of Acts, we find that they were cut to the heart when they heard the gospel. They're cut to the heart. They obey the gospel. And then as they learn more and more about God's plan, about how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled that plan, their sense of awe, their wonder, their amazement continued. Maybe a somewhat literal translation would be something like, Fear was occurring in every soul. Your versions might, might use the word fear instead of awe. It's not that they were afraid. It's not that as the days went on, they grew more and more afraid. No, it's that fear in the sense of awe and wonder and amazement continued to grow in them as they learned more and more about God, about His nature, His character, and what He had accomplished through Christ. Maybe at times you, you find yourself thinking about that and you just think, wow, I just can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe it. I do believe it. But it's just amazing who God is and what He has done for me. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's that kind of sense of awe and sense of wonder that filled them and grew and grew and grew. And so New American Standard Bible tries to bring out that nuance. They kept feeling a sense of awe. It wasn't just a one-time thing and, wow, that's great. It was something that continued in them over a period of time. And what did they do as the result of that? Verse 47, they praised God. And so that's the natural outcome of this sense of awe, isn't it? That we praise God. We, we break out in worship, the worship of God. Well, we want to, that sense of all to remain and grow throughout our lifetime. Uh, we, we, want to, we want to continually be in amazement and wonder and awe of what God has done for us. 
And as we grow more and more spiritually mature, as we develop a deeper understanding of what God has done, as we spend more time in serious meditation and contemplation about these things, well, then that sense of awe continues to grow and grow. Let's think about a little bit about who God is and what He's done for us, maybe in an effort to emphasize the idea. God is an eternal, all-wise, almighty, infinite God. There's plenty of evidence to support that affirmation. We've talked about some of it recently. But think about that. There, there is a God, a spirit being. He is eternal, without beginning, without end. He is all-wise. He is almighty. So just think, just think about that for a little while. Think about the implications of that. An eternal, all-wise, almighty God who is infinite, He is boundless, He exists, He is real. Plenty of evidence to support that. This God is a personal being. He knows, He has intellect, He sees, He speaks, He has emotion, He is pleased, He is angered at times. He possesses qualities like compassion and mercy and justice and holiness, all of them immeasurable. Think about that. And so a God of infinite mercy, a God of infinite love, a God of infinite grace, a God of infinite justice, all of those qualities found in an immeasurable way in God. He's a personal being. It's not an impersonal object, not just a block, you know, uh, of, of something. He's a person. He has intellect. He knows. He sees. He can communicate. He feels emotion. All of those things that we find in persons. There are three persons in the Godhead, uh, no less. Each has his individuality. There is God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each has his individual individuality, but they are so united as to make one God. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. I always wonder about the words that I choose when I'm talking about that. But one God, in three persons. Now, just think about that for a while. If you want to stand in awe of something, just try to figure out how that can possibly be. Each one maintaining their own individuality. And so the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And yet, they're so united that there is only one divine being existing in three persons. And so, no wonder, you know, we stand in awe of God. We continual, continually sense this, this awe within us. This God is the creator of all things, of all things. All things that are, He's created them uh, by simply speaking them into existence. We are created in His image. We are like Him. And so just as God is a person, so we too are persons, and we are able to enter into a personal relationship with Him. can't enter into a personal relationship with the table. The table's not a person, but God is a person, and we can relate to Him and enter into a relationship with Him on a personal level. And so He's the creator of all things. He made us in His image and that makes it possible for us to have a personal relationship with Him. Now, we've destroyed that relationship through our sin. 
However, he's taken the necessary action to bring us back into fellowship with him. Not that we deserved it, not that we merited it, not that we earned it, anything like that, nothing even close to anything like that. And yet God has taken the initiative to bring us, unholy as we are, uh, and immoral as we are, and godly as we might be, to bring us back into fellowship with Him. And what that required of Him was the gift of His Son. One of the three in the Godhead we talked about just a moment ago, God the Son, He came to the earth, He lived as one of us, He took on our sin on Himself, went to the cross, uh, experienced the most extreme form of execution, I suppose, ever devised in the corrupt heart of man, and did that to atone for my sin and for your sin. Why would he? You know, I, don't know, we, I don't know we've got a great answer as, uh, for the question of why would he do that other than he loved us, because he, for some reason he loved us. And yet that enables us to have a relationship with him, not only here and now, but throughout all eternity. No wonder those early Christians kept feeling a sense of awe. When you think about all of those things, it is awe-inspiring. And so we trust and obey, our sins are forgiven, and fellowship with God is restored. And in eternity, He will bring us to Himself in glory, in life, forever and ever. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about the gospel and uh, explains the gospel, deals with the gospel uh, and for, you know, for the long period of time here in the book of Romans. As it gets to the end of his discussion, verse, chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. Now, what Paul is saying there is this. We, there, just stand before him with his sense of awe. We can't figure it out. We can't understand it completely. But we are just overjoyed and overcome with gratitude that he's, been able, that he's able to do it. I thought also of the eighth psalm. You remember the eighth psalm? You see this sense of awe in, in David on this occasion. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? He's just a sense of awe, isn't it? When I, I, I think about David keeping the sheep at night uh, there and, uh, in, in the pasture, and the sheep have settled down for the evening. David's there, he's watching over the sheep. He's got his staff in his hand. In my mind, got his staff in his hand, sitting on a rock, watching over the sheep. And he's looking up at the stars. And he just says, wow, you, th this is the work of your fingers. It's, it's just awe-inspiring. And so it's that God who has sent his son into the world to redeem you and me. Again, no wonder they kept feeling a sense of awe. Do we, do we feel that? Do, do we experience that sense of awe? Or has, over time, the longer we become Christians, we feel it less and less? Well, we need, if that's the case, we need to do a little bit more contemplation. We need to do a little bit more meditation. 
We need to think a little bit more about the great things that God has done for, for, for me. And I think we'll recover that sense of awe if we've lost it. Well, the next thing he's done is, is this. They, they spent time together. And so day by day, they continued with one mind in the temple. And so for a while anyway, they were in the temple, I suppose for worship, every day, day by day by day by day. Um, this is a Sunday evening crowd, so I won't say a whole lot about how difficult it is for, for us to get people here three times a week. They're there every day for a while. But anyway, I'll, I'll let that pass. But they're together every day in the temple. And then they're taking their meals together at home. I, I take that for social purposes. But they're together. They're together in worship for spiritual purposes. They're together outside of worship for social purposes. And as a result, they're forming strong bonds between them. And they're getting to know each other. We find this in Jesus and his disciples as well, don't we? Jesus spent time teaching and preparing them for their work in the gospel. But their relationship was more than just academic, wasn't it? And so Jesus spent time teaching them and preparing them, but they spent time together in, in other ways as well, building a strong relationship, building a strong bond between them. And so they spent a great deal of time together. They traveled together, went to weddings together apparently, at least uh, when invited, spent days and nights together, and the result was a strong relationship. In John chapter 15 and verse 12, we find this. Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You're, you're my friends. And so they become, they become friends. And he says, you're my friends. If you do what I ask you to do, if you do my, my, my teaching, then, then you're my friends. And so that suggests a strong, a kind of a personal relationship that they had between each other. We, we in this room, we, we need to build strong relationships by spending time together. We're called on to encourage one another day by day. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, you know, we can encourage each other better if we know each other well, can't we? If we know that a brother is struggling, if we know his weaknesses, if we know his strengths, if we know his temptations, we can encourage him better. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So we can do those things better if we know each other, we provide others with a, a source of encouragement they can turn to when needed. Ever known of a situation, maybe you've been in a situation where <clears throat> got something on your mind, it's bothering you, you're struggling with something. I, I sure would like to talk to somebody about it if I just knew somebody well enough to be able to confide in them. That'd be, bad. That'd be a bad situation in a church the size of this one, wouldn't it? <laughs> And so, see, we provide a source of encouragement. Not only do we find sources of encouragement, we become a source of encouragement to others. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 tells us to, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
And we don't bear each other's burdens. And we want to put ourselves in a position where we can help people with their burdens. But, you know, the, the more we know each other, the more time we spend together, the better we know each other, the more likely we are to be that source of encouragement. And you know what? We can correct each other more effectively if we have a strong relationship with the one who needs the correction. And, and, and so, you know, here, here's someone and they correct a person, that's the first time they've ever talked to them, they, they hardly even know their name and yet they come up to them and they, here's some kind of, I, I don't know how great that's gonna go over. <laughs> I, I suspect how it would go over with me. <laughs> but if I know somebody and I have a relationship with them, it's a strong relationship, and I know how they feel about me and how I feel about them. Hey, we can be open with each other, and we can talk to each other, and that, that criticism, that correction, it's going to go a lot further than if it's just cold. Even if, the, even if the criticism is valid, it's going to go better if we have that relationship with each other. Galatians 2 and verse 11, we find Paul withstanding Peter to the face because he stood condemned, but it didn't ruin their relationship, did it? We find later on, Peter speaking very highly of, of Paul. Have you ever seen a church where the members see each other at worship, but only at worship? There's no warm interaction, only cold, impersonal isolation. This group sits over here, that one sits over there, they sit over there. No interaction between them, just kind of isolation. You come, you feel the same. Oh, you know each other, but there's really no, no, not much of a relationship there beyond the fact that you feel the same room on Sunday morning in worship. And I wonder if this doesn't happen sometimes as a church, in a sense, grows older and the people begin, the people know each other very well. They, they've spent a lot of time together. And, and yet that, you know, that, that camaraderie that, that we have, that togetherness that we have when things are new and exciting, that, that's diminished over time. And so this togetherness sort of fades. Well, we can't let, we can't let that happen to us. We need to be together day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and taking our meals together, building the relationship so that we can be that encouragement and source of encouragement, even correction when needed. And then the next thing, they're sharing with all as anyone had need. They're, they're taking care of each other. They're generous with one another. This may have been a kind of have and have nots situation. You know, you have the haves and the have nots. And I imagine in these days in the early church, there was some of that. There were the haves and the have nots. We read about those who had possessions began to sell their property and shared the proceeds with all as anyone had need. And so you had the haves and the have-nots. And the remarkable thing is those who had, they, they sold it, sold their property, sold their possessions, took the money and shared it with their new brothers and sisters in Christ, those who were in need. And it wasn't an isolated incident. We find this continuing 
In Acts chapter 4, for example, the congregation of those who believed were one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them. All who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as anyone had need. We see it in Acts chapter 6. We see it in Acts chapter 11. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16, the collection for the saints. As Paul's on his second journeys, or third journeys, collecting money for the needy saints back in, in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 8, we see it again. 2 Corinthians 9, Romans 15. See it in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as well as the church is charged with taking care of those who are widows indeed. And so this is, a, this is not an isolated instance. This is a continuing practice of the disciples. We're called upon to be generous to all who are in need. But remember, especially those of the household of faith, Galatians 6 and verse 10. They were to do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith, other Christians. You know, we have opportunities to help brethren in need fairly regularly, don't we? We have opportunities. comes up. You know, pretty regularly, pretty often. And we, we need to respond to that. I think we have responded to that, but don't need to let that wane or diminish. Follow the example of the early church. Do our best to see that no one lacks. Now, that, that was the object here. Those who were in need had their needs met so that they didn't lack what they needed. We want to do our best to make sure that no one lacks. That might mean more than money, of course or something other than money. But that's, that's the goal, that no one lacks. The last point we'll make is this. The Lord was adding to their number day by day. How, how do you think that happened? The Lord was adding to their number day by day. We see 3,000 here on the first day. In Acts 4 and verse 4, the number of men, the number of males, grows to be about 5,000. How'd that happen? How, how is it that people were added to the Lord's body to, to the church day by day. Well, the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing. They, they heard the gospel. Day by day, people were hearing the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, 21, God saves us through the message preached. Again, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Remember in Acts chapter 8, verse 31, the Ethiopian is riding along in his chariot. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? Remember what he says? How can I unless someone guides me? So how did this happen? That the Lord is adding to the church or adding to his people day by day those who are being saved. Well, somebody's teaching the gospel, aren't they? They're, they're hearing the gospel day by day. They're accepting the gospel. Somebody is guiding them so that they understand the gospel sufficiently to obey. That they're evangelistic, these early Christians, aren't they? They're, they're evangelistic. See, that's how God adds people to His church. As His people share the message with those who are lost, that's how you become Christians. Faith comes by hearing. So they're hearing the preaching of the gospel or they're being taught the gospel, guided into the truth by someone like Philip or Stephen or someone like that. Now we know the, pro the apostles are 
are preaching, but no doubt others are busy sharing the gospel as well. Philip in Acts chapter 8, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Ananias in Acts chapter 9. The church certainly would not have grown at this rate without many people being involved. The church is not going to grow unless the members of the church spread the gospel. Say that again. The church is not going to grow unless members of the church share the gospel. You know, individually and in isolation, we're all limited in our sphere, in the number of people that we're exposed to. And so you take me in isolation by myself, I'm limited. You know, I only come across a certain number of people, and here's another in, in isolation. And, but, but together, if we're all involved, working together, well, the exposure to the gospel rises exponentially. And so individually and together, we need to reach as many as possible. The greater the involvement, the more we can reach. And so, no doubt these early Christians are they're excited about being Christians. They want to share the gospel with their family, with their friends, with their co-workers, whoever they might meet. They're anxious to, to spread the gospel, and so they do. And as a result, the Lord is adding to the church. Look at Colossians chapter 4 and verse and verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison. Pray for us that the door of opportunity might be open to preach the word. Let's pray for each other, but let's pray for, for that for ourselves, that God will open up to us the door of opportunity to plant the seed of the gospel into someone's heart. In Acts chapter 8, there's a persecution that arises uh, against the Christians in Jerusalem, and they're all scattered. Uh, uh, they're all scattered uh, except the apostles. They stay back in Jerusalem. And verse 4 says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. These, these are ordinary Christians. And they're scattered. They leave Jerusalem because of the persecution. But they take the gospel with them, and they bring others into the body of Christ. There's an interesting statement here in, in this passage. I haven't highlighted it. It's down in verse 47, if you can find it up there, verse 47. They're praising God, and they're having favor with all the people. That, that's interesting to me. <laughs> they, they apparently were impressive to the people. They gained the people's favor. Uh, they gained the people's approval. Too often, that's not the case with us. Now, that's not absolutely true for all time. In fact, in the next chapter, we find Peter and John being arrested. In chapter 4, we find the apostles being arrested. We know that persecution comes and rejection comes. But for the time being, at least, that favor with all the people. What were they doing? that brought about this favorable situation. What could it be? Their fellowship in the Lord, their sense of awe, their togetherness, enjoying the company of each other, sharing with each other, and praising God. All of this done with gladness and sincerity of heart. And so, could it be that? That the people saw and praised them, favored them, and... Um, 
accepted them, wanted to be part of them. Look at the results they had. And what we want to do is approach the practice of our faith the way they did, so that we can see the results that they saw as well. So these are just some thoughts, some ideas drawn from what happened in those days after Pentecost. Continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, kept feeling a sense of awe. They were together and had all things common. They were sharing what they had as anyone might have need. They were together in the temple with one mind day by day, but taking their meals together at home, praising God, and the Lord's adding to their number, their evangelistic, the Lord's adding to their number as people trusted and obeyed. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we can set our, our mind to duplicating what we find in these early disciples today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that we can be disciples of your Son, Jesus. We're, we're thankful, Father, that, that you, in your love, have extended your mercy to us, your grace to us, your love toward us, so that we might be drawn into fellowship with you. Father, we, we are in awe of this, that you, the creator of the universe, the infinite God, the God who is almighty and all-wise, so check your thoughts on us, weak and sinful as we are. And yet, Father, you have, and you've given us that opportunity. And so we stand in awe of you for the great things you've done on our behalf. Father, help us as we strive to live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to abide in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Help us to, on a regular basis, remember the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us be devoted to prayer. Help us to see these other qualities in these first century Christians. Help us to continue to feel that, that sense of awe, to be unified, to share what we have so that no one among us has need. Help us to be evangelistic, to reach out and bring others in. Help us to build strong relationships with one another by being together. In this way, Father, we hope to please you, and we hope to bring others to glorify you as well. Help us, Father, day by day as we strive to be more and more the kind of people that you would have us to be. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're ready to become a disciple,